We are on the third week of Advent already, and we've been looking at Christmas in the New Testament, but not specifically the four Gospels. Actually, two of the four Gospels talk about the birth narrative of Jesus. John's Gospel is not one of them. It talks about him as the Word, the preexistent Word. But we looked last week at Revelation. This week I want us to look at Galatians. Next week at Philippians. The, the epistles, the later letters of the New Testament, refer back to the birth of Jesus. Why did God send Jesus, Christ, into the world when he did? Why wasn't it a thousand years earlier than he did? Why wasn't it 2,000 years later than he did, which would make it not that long ago, right? Why did Jesus get sent into the world at the very time that he did? The Bible tells us that in the fullness of time, right when the time was right under the sovereign hand of God, God sent Jesus into the world. And in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, where we'll be this morning, it's as if he takes all of God's people as one person. And says, just when it was at the right age, just when we were at the right age, God sent his son and adopted us and made us full-blown heirs of the kingdom. Look with me at Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. We read this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord, and may the Lord add his blessing to the proclamation and the receiving, the application of his word this morning. Because of Christmas... Because of Christmas, we are spiritually adopted. That's the message here. Uh, Here's where we're going. In verses 1 to 3, we were once slaves to the law. Then in 4 to 5, God sent forth his son to save us. And then finally, 6 and 7, we are now spiritually adopted, adopted by God. Because of Christmas, we are spiritually adopted. In verses 1 to 3, he says here, he describes God's people before Jesus Christ had come into the world. He says he uses the illustration of a child from a wealthy family. The child is an heir, right? It all belongs to him. He's the owner of everything, but he's a minor. (laughs) And as a minor, he's no different than a servant or a slave of the house. He's got to do his chores. He's got to go where he's told to go. He's got to go to classes and learn and be tutored. And even though he is officially the owner of everything, he's the heir of all that is in that household, He doesn't make any decisions for the home. He doesn't make any decisions about buying a new car or selling a summer home or anything like that. He is subject to all the rules of the house. And so he says, so it is with us. Before Jesus, we are under guardians and managers, the pedagogue, until the date set by the Father. 
Usually, of course, in the United States, that would be about 18. Actually, in the Roman Empire, 18 would be about that same age. You're considered no longer the property of your parents, but you become the property of the state at around the age of 18. Um, you ever wish you were a trust fund kid? Uh, I, I, that would be kind of fun, right? So you got you know a few million dollars sitting in the bank that's just waiting for you. So whenever you turn a certain age, you know, 25, 30, whatever, it all gets released to you, and you don't have to work another day in your life. You just work for fun. Uh, that would be great, right? Most people are not trust fund kids, but that's kind of the picture being brought about here. The heir is just a kid, and he has to sort of earn his way upward till the day comes. And so it is, he says, we are enslaved to these guardians and managers and teachers. We're enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Really, that's just one word in the Greek, stoicheia. A lot of debate has gone into what stoicheia actually means. Uh, It can refer to demonic powers. It can refer to the elements like fire and water, wind and um, all that. Um, But most likely in this context, it's a reference to the law. The, the Jewish law. If you read it in the previous chapter in Galatians, it refers to that moral and ceremonial laws that we get in the Old Testament. But broader than that, that's why he doesn't use the word law here, but also for the Gentile, the conscience, religious principles, all of that is sort of just training and teaching us until the day comes when Christ is sent into this world. You know, one question we often get is salvation before Christ enters the world. If we celebrate Christmas for 2,000 years ago, what happened to God's people for thousands and thousands and thousands of years before that? And the answer in the Bible is pretty clear. Faithful Israel and believing Gentiles throughout the Old Testament era, up in the time of Christ, belong to God. We learn about Melchizedek, for example. He's described in the earliest days uh, with Abraham. These are sort of the patriarch days before there was much civilization in the world. Melchizedek is described as a priest of God Most High. And he's not Jewish. He's not a Semite at all. And Abraham uh, looks to him and actually tithes to him. And he's recognized as a priest. And Jesus comes in the order of Melchizedek. We learn about Rahab, the prostitute, who's part of the Canaanites. And yet she's a believer and eventually joins Israel. Ruth, the Moabitess. Jonah goes to reach the Ninevites in Babylon. Uh, I'm sorry, Syria, and they begin to come to faith uh, in the one true in the living God. No doubt about it. There'll be many in heaven with us and in the resurrection who lived before Jesus was born. They were under the law. They were under guardianship of the law, yet they truly knew the Lord. Now understand, all are saved only by Jesus, okay? So they are sort of, their sins were sort of passed over until the coming of Christ as if Jesus, the cross, of Jesus stands in the middle of all of human history. Without it, no one is saved afterwards and no one is saved beforehand. Trusting in a sovereign God and awaiting the time of redemption. But he describes it here as when the proper time had come, God sent forth his son. All those who lived before Jesus missed the greatest act of God in human history. The gift of his own son entering into our world to redeem us and save us. Friends, before we move on, though, recognize what we have. By the way, that's sort of the point of Galatians here. Uh, Don't live as if you're still under the law, as if you're still under the stoicheia, the elemental principles of this world. Jesus has come to redeem us. In verse 9, which we're not covering today, but later in the same chapter, he says, Now that you know 
Now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and the miserable, worthless elemental principles of this world, whose slaves you want to be once more? He's arguing against the idea of legalism. Now that you have Jesus, why are you turning back to Sabbath rules and food laws and all these different rules and regulations and ceremonies and rituals as if that's going to do anything? All that was meant as a tutelage to lead you to Jesus. It's not just all of history for God's people. Our own lives reflect this progression, don't they? We start off young, typically, thinking that we have to sort of do the right things to be accepted by God. Try to be a good person. Go through the ceremonies that your church tells you that you need to go through. We do it and then we fail. (laughs) And hopefully we come to realize that we're never going to be able to achieve this on our own. And we look to Jesus as the Savior, the Rescuer, the Redeemer, and our only hope of salvation. Friends, I think there's an encouragement here, certainly, to let others know who are still trying to live by religion, by the law. As if that's going to save them. I've gone through all of the proper ordinances and sacraments and rituals of my religion. No, the greatest gift has been given. All that was just meant to lead you to the Son. And we can know him personally. We can be adopted as his own children. We can be his forever. Now we obey the law, not because we have to in order to be saved, but because we love God and we want to do what's pleasing to him. Not the ceremonies that were only pointing us to Jesus, but loving our neighbor as ourself, loving the Lord with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. One of the most common illustrations I use for this is, you know, my own kids. Uh, they are mine. They belong to me. They're my son. That's my son and my daughter. I love them no matter what. My rule is not, if you don't make your bed and clean your room, then you are no longer my son. <laughs> you're no longer my daughter. It's not how it works, right? No matter what you do, you're my son and my daughter. There's nothing you can do to break that. But because you respect me and love me as your dad, if I ask you to do something, you do it out of love. That's the difference, right? We know God. We love God. We're his We obey him because we love and revere him, not because we're trying to earn anything. The difference has been made through Jesus, which we see in verses 4 and 5, a reference to Christmas. When the fullness of time had come, under God's sovereign plan and will, God sent Jesus. He brought about Christmas Day. God sent forth his son. Notice that. Uh, Jesus is not just another prophet in the long history of prophets, not another priest or a king or rabbi or just some other man. He's the eternal son. In order for God to bring the son into us, he would have to be the son already. You can't give something that you don't have. He's God's eternal son brought to us. He's described as being born of a woman, which is kind of a strange thing to say when you think about it because We're all born of a woman, right? Why even say that if that's true of every human being on this planet? Probably a reference back to Eve, the promise given to her that her child, the seed of the woman, would bring salvation and defeat the serpent. We talked about a little bit about that last week. So the one who was born of the woman, uh, Eve, the ultimate woman, it could be a reference to the virgin birth. Born of a woman, not of a man. Why emphasize being born of a woman? Because... He had no earthly father. But I think one thing we can say for sure, it does emphasize his humanity. Jesus, the eternal son, is also human like us. He had a mother. He was human. He's our brother. 
He's born under the law. Uh, Jesus was Jewish. In order for him to set us free from the rules and ceremonies of the law, Jesus had to be born under the law. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He obeyed the food laws. He obeyed all of the Jewish ceremonies without fail. He constantly broke the traditions of men. He constantly broke the fence laws, but he obeyed the true law of God to a T. Why? To redeem those who are under the law. Let's take a minute to think about why was the first century of all times the fullness of time? Why is that the time that the sun had to come into this world? We don't know for sure, but there are some clues, I think, from history. One, uh, understand that the Hebrew scriptures were finished. Uh, For 400 years, no scripture was written. It was understood to be completed. Uh, A bunch of things happened in that 400 years. You had the Maccabees and the whole of Hanukkah, all of that. A bunch of books were written. We call them the Apocrypha. And other books like the Pseudepigrapha, you know, Enoch, all these other books are written, but none of them were seen as equal to this Hebrew scriptures. It's finished and completed. And there's 400 years of silence until God brings about his greatest act, the gift of his son. A lot of things were happening in the world. Um, a guy by the name of Alexander the Great um, in the 4th century BC, so the 300s, had conquered most of the known world. And Alexander was a great lover of Greek culture, even though he himself was Macedonian, but close enough. And in doing so, he spread Greek culture and the Greek language. So for the first time, almost the entire world, known world at that time, spoke the same language. Or at least knew Greek, even if it wasn't their primary language. Before that, every country and area had their own language. And when the New Testament is written, it's written in that language, Greek, and it's able to spread rapidly across the world in a way that it would be impossible to earlier than that. Another reason is the Roman Empire. Uh, The Romans prided themselves in creating a, a time of peace, the Pax Romana, creating roads that were safe for travel. Because of that, missionaries could take the message shortly after the resurrection of Jesus and spread it to Thessalonica and Ephesus and Galatia and Athens and all over the ancient world. All the way eventually into India, into Spain. Why? Because of the Roman Empire. Everything was sort of prepared for the spread of the gospel. And one more thing. The temple was destroyed shortly after by the Romans. You could say chicken and egg, which came first, right? Jesus came, and that's why the temple was ultimately destroyed. But either way, all of worship in Judaism was centered around the temple, the priesthood, the Sadducees, the sacrifices. All of it came to an end within one generation after Jesus' resurrection. And even till today, does not continue on. In Judaism, you cannot offer a sacrifice without a temple. It's considered sacrilege. So until the temple gets rebuilt, the way the Jews, Judaism looks at it, you don't offer sacrifices for 2,000 years right after God sent forth his son and fulfilled the sacrificial system. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Christmas, friends, is all about that date <laughs> when Jesus, the son, is born of a woman. Now, I know that some people may be uh, skeptical of Christmas. I've talked to many Christians who are, um, and that's not unusual. In fact, uh, for the first two centuries of Christianity, um, Christmas was not really celebrated very much. Uh, You didn't celebrate any birthdays, by the way. You celebrated your martyrdom. 
Uh, so it was, it was considered kind of pagan to celebrate a day of birth. You celebrated a day where you were, had the second birth, when you died and enter into eternity. Um, the Puritans, whom I love, by the way, um, they didn't celebrate Christmas. They thought it was too sort of secular to celebrate Christmas. I think they're wrong. We'll talk about that in a little bit here. Um, but a lot of people have said, you know, the idea of Santa Claus and gift giving, um, that seems so worldly. Christmas trees. I had someone leave our church because we had a Christmas tree in our sanctuary. We had conversations about it. Others say, you know, the 25th of December, I mean, is that really Jesus' birthday? So uh, just, just for your sake, do a little service for you guys here. I did a little bit of research on this. And actually, Christmas is far more Christian than maybe we understand it to be. Um, of course, the name Christmas just means the Mass of Christ, the day we celebrate the birth of Christ. In other societies and languages, it's typically called, the, it's about the nativity, the, the birth, the Navidad, uh, for our Spanish speakers, right? Feliz Navidad, Natale in Italian, Noel in French, they all refer to the birth, the Natus, the baby, Jesus. The emphasis is clearly there. What about Santa Claus? Santa Claus, of course, you know, I'm sure you've heard some of this, but was based on a real person, Nicholas of Bari, a 4th century bishop of Myra, which is in modern-day Turkey. Uh, Santa Claus was imprisoned and tortured by Diocletian, um, and then eventually released by the first Christian emperor, Constantine. He was known for his generosity, his kindness, and for doing miracles whether you believe that, those historical accounts of his miracles or not. There's one story of, of uh, St. Nicholas giving dowries of gold to three poor girls so they could get married and saving them from a life of prostitution. There's a funny or interesting story, at least, about uh, Santa, Santa Claus. Uh, so St. Nicholas did attend the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., so early, early on, when the church was meeting together to discuss sound doctrine about the Trinity and about the nature of Jesus. And while he was at this council, Arius, who's a heretic, uh, began to spout out different heresies about Jesus being a creature made by God and all that. And St. Nicholas got up from his seat, walked over to Arius, and smacked him in the face. (laughs) And uh, all the bishops were shocked that a bishop just went and smacked Arius in the face, they didn't know what to do. Constantine, the emperor, said, it's up, this is on you guys. You decide what you're going to do. This is a bishop matter. So they arrested Santa Claus. Uh, they stuck him in jail to keep him away from the council until it was over. While he was in prison, Santa Claus began to pray. And uh, as he prayed and prayed, he came to realize, I did the right thing. Um, that his, this heresy about Jesus needed to be dealt with, and so it was good for me to smack him in the face. I don't know, that's the conclusion. He basically comes to, eventually he is released from prison by uh, Constantine and continues his ministry. If you're wondering where the term Santa Claus comes from, Dutch colonists um, really brought in the celebration of St. Nicholas in the 17th century. They brought it here to the United States, the Dutch Way, the Dutch word for St. Nicholas is Sinter Klaus. Klaus is Nicholas. So when we call him Santa, what we're saying is saint. Saint is coming this Christmas is what we're ultimately saying. Pretty explicitly Christian background. What about gift giving? Gift giving goes back to the 15th century as a celebration of this. Obviously based on the Magi bringing gifts to Jesus. 
the Christmas tree. Isn't that a secular symbol? This is from uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. So this isn't some Christian website that wants to sort of Christianize history. This is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. The use of evergreen trees, wreaths, and garlands to symbolize eternal life was a custom of the ancient Egyptians, Chinese, and Hebrews. A tree that doesn't die in the winter. The modern Christmas tree, though, originated in western Germany, of course, the Tannenbaum. The Germans set up what they called a paradise tree in their homes on December 24th, the religious feast day of Adam and Eve. They hung wafers on it, symbolizing the Eucharistic host, the Christian sign of redemption. In a later tradition, the wafers were replaced by cookies of various shapes. Candles, symbolic of Christ as the light of the world, were often added. Christmas tree has a very explicitly Christian background. All right, what about December 25th? I got bad news for you guys in some ways. December 25th was probably not the birthday of Jesus. All right, so here's one area where we say it goes back a long time, 1,800 years actually, 221 AD, 221, a Christian historian by the name of Sextus Julius Africanus um, began to recognize the December 25th date as the birth of Jesus. But it most likely does not date back to the actual birth of Jesus. But who cares? <laughs> it's a date that we decide as Christians for 1,800 years, actually 1,800 years this year, which is pretty neat, um, that we're going to recognize as the day of Jesus' birth because we don't know the day that he was actually born. Here's the point, friends. Yes, in one sense, of course, we celebrate Jesus' birth all year long. We do the same thing with his life. We do the same thing with his resurrection. But instead of not then celebrating it at Christmas, I'd go in the other direction. Let's take every reminder we can, every opportunity we can to remember the great gift of God sending forth his son into this world. And what an opportunity it provides for us to say to our neighbors and our friends who maybe don't know Christ, this is the day we celebrate God sent forth his son. If anything, I would say let's celebrate it bigger. (laughs) Let's let the world know. Let's make sure we continue to make this a priority that Jesus' birth is huge. It's the greatest act of God. It's what brings about our adoption. Verses 6 to 7, we are now spiritually adopted. We're adopted because of Jesus. As he says here, you are now sons. Probably emphasizes the masculine there for two reasons. One, that's typical you would use the masculine um, as a reference to both men and women. But sons were the only ones that actually gained an inheritance, typically. So men and women, we all gain an inheritance. We are sons. God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts. Notice the Trinitarian work here. It's not just the Father or just the Son or just the Holy Spirit. All three are at work. In Christmas, God sends his Son into the world. His Son accomplishes our redemption and salvation on the cross and in the resurrection. And the Spirit of God enters our hearts and does what? Cries out, Abba, Father. Of course, Abba is the Hebrew word for Father. The word we read in the English, Father, was written in Greek, pater, bringing together Jews and Gentiles together under one Father. You've probably heard this before, but Abba was an intimate term. Almost like dad or dear father. 
But those in Christ are no longer slaves, like the child under the guardians, who's just basically like a servant in the house, but sons, fully recognized as heirs of all the blessings of the kingdom, both in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. Friends, adoption, spiritual adoption, is one of the sweetest blessings of the Christian life. You think about it, God could potentially save us and not adopt us. We're creatures, like horses and dogs and whatever else. We're creatures made by God and in rebellion against God under judgment, and God rescues these creatures from his wrath. The story could have ended there. But no, God does more than that. He takes us as his image bearers and he adopts us into his own family. Philip Graham Ryken says, it would be enough for God to release us from slavery, to rescue us from our captivity to the law and so to redeem us from its curse. But God did not stop there. Once Christ had gained our freedom, he gathered us into his family. He went beyond redemption to adoption, turning slaves into sons. Some of you guys here are adopted. Some of you here have adopted. And you know you look at your own son or daughter in no way different than your very own. Or if you've been adopted by a good parent, they look at you no different than if you were their very own. It's as if when God sees us, he loves us like we were Jesus Christ himself. Because we are in him, united to him by faith. Friends, this, this is what makes Christmas really special. God sent forth his son so that we would become sons. J.I. Packer said, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers higher even than justification and the entire Christian life has to be understood in terms of it. Spurgeon, sort of marveling over this verse, said, Oh, matchless mystery. Had it not been revealed, it never would have been imagined. And now that it is revealed, it never would have been believed if it had not become a matter of actual experience to those who are in Christ. We are his children. According to Roman law, an adopted child would be seen as no different, legally speaking, than any child in the household. Friends, enjoy your adoption if your faith is in Christ. Know that you're loved. You know, when I read the scriptures, I I don't get the the sort of wishy-washy, cuddly, mushy love from God, but I get the real, true love, sacrificial love, a love willing to die to redeem me, a love that would never leave or forsake or abandon me, the love of a father for a son. When we pray, we pray to God as Abba, (laughs) Pater, not as some distant deity, some mantra, but his dear father. 
You're part of the family. Enjoying your adoption means if I'm adopted and you're adopted, what does that make us? Siblings, right? We're brothers and sisters. When we as Christians talk about ourselves as brothers and sisters, that isn't just empty language. That's just another word for friends. We are spiritual family together. And friends, let people know that the family is open to more kids. (laughs) The father is still welcoming new kids into the family. Spread the good news that Jesus Christ has come to save. Because of Christmas, we are spiritually adopted. Adoption is one of those things that, uh, even now, it makes me tear up. (laughs) It's just the idea behind it. And I'm not adopted, but it's still just the mentality that, that a kid that maybe nobody wants finds a home. And, oh, I love the uh, kids' movie, Despicable Me. Have you ever seen Despicable Me? All right, so the first one, Gru, whose, whose voice is done by Steve Carell, adopts these three girls, and he does it for some selfish reason, and he ends up losing them. And then he realizes they're the most important thing in his life, and he tries to get them back. And the oldest one is hesitant, and she says, but you gave us up. And he says, that was the biggest mistake I've made in my life. Jesus came into this world as a child not wanted. Joseph, at first, rejected him. As a child born out of wedlock, the town talked. Even when Joseph finally did accept him, when you think about it, Jesus is an adopted child by his earthly father, They go to an inn, and there's no room even for a pregnant woman. And a maniac, Herod, is trying to kill him. But when adoption works right, and a kid finds a parent who loves her and loves him, they become part of family. Friends, we were spiritually rejected in our sin. And God looked at you and me, And he made you his own. He not only rescued you from the wrath of God and judgment. He spiritually adopted you as his son. All because of Jesus. Christmas. Is what we celebrate this season. Is why we are spiritually adopted. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder, as we need reminders again and again of the gospel, that Christ has come into this world, one of us in every way, yet without sin. Went to the cross in his full humanity and divinity and died our death to redeem us so that we would be yours, adopted as your children both in this life and into eternity. In Christ's name we pray, amen.